Amen. Thank you, John. Start our service this morning. I want to ask a question of all of us, and, and it's a, a topic that we already started our service talking about, and, and this is the question. What is Christ worthy of? Think about the question for yourself. What is Christ worthy of? What can he ask of us? What can he require of us that is, is worthy of him receiving? I think most of us know the right answer to that question. In fact, let's just get the right answer out of the way. What is Christ worthy of? Everything. Good. We, we've got it. Let's go home now. Let's go get that extra hour of sleep that we missed. That's the right answer, but is it the real answer? Now, let me define my terms, and, and because I'm dif differentiating right versus real, right answer, the right answer is the true answer. It's the answer that is true regardless of our perspective, regardless of our thoughts. This is what is true. The real answer, though, is our personal answer answer. The real answer is when push comes to shove, what am I going to do? When the rubber hits the road, how will I respond? We can say that Christ is Lord over everything. That's the right answer. But when we observe how we practically live, the real answer is that often we do not live as if Christ is Lord over everything. Do you see the difference between the two versus right answer and real answer? Let me just illustrate this for, for real quickly. Let's say that a child comes up to you and says, I need some help doing a party for, for someone I know that, that's really going to be great. Can you help me throw a party for, for this person that I know? Now, you'd say, absolutely. I'd love to help you. Tell me more about this person. Why? Why do you need to know more about the person? Well, if it's supposed to be a party worthy of that person, you need to know more about that person. And so if the, if the kid says, it's for my best friend, Tommy... Tommy and I love playing in the dirt. We love finding worms. And, and I just thought we could have a fun afternoon together. Can you help me do something? Sure, we can do that. On the other hand, if, if the child says, it's for my older brother. He's finally coming home. He's been in war for the last several years. He can't walk anymore. He got to meet the president. The president gave him some honoring medal. I'm not really sure what it's about, but, but he's having a hard time, and I want to do something as he finally gets home. Are you throwing the same party? No. When you find out, whoa, that's who this is for, we can do something more. So let me ask again, what is Christ worthy of? See, the right answer is that he's worthy of everything. The real answer is that there are some things that he could require of us that would be hard for us to give. The real answer is that if he came and actually asked for everything, that would be a hard thing for us to do. 
I think every single one of us in this room right now can think of something that if he asked you to give him that, you would struggle. There's a good chance he is asking you to give something right now and you are struggling to give that. It's hard. But if he's really worthy of everything, then he deserves for us to give him anything. So far in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and if you're not already there, go ahead and open up to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 1, finishing up the chapter this morning. Paul has quickly established a goal for believers. We find the goal in verse 10. What is the goal? What does he keep on calling us to do? We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the goal. Now, what do we need to know? And we already kind of illustrated this. What do we need to know if we're being called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? We need to know Christ's identity. Like we did in our illustration, the identity of Christ determines what exactly he's worthy of receiving. Paul knows that. And so throughout chapter 1, Paul has revealed this is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done. And we, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Colossians, so I'm just going to go through the list quickly with us. What is it exactly? Who is Jesus? What has he done? Verse 5, and if you have your Bible, just, just accompany. Verse 5, he is our hope found in heaven. Verse 13, he is the ruler of his kingdom. Verse 14, and I'm not taking these directly, I'm paraphrasing, but verse 14, he is our redeemer and the one in whom we find forgiveness. Verse 15, he is the image of the father and the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, he is the creator. In him, all things were created. Through him, all things were created. For him, all things were created. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Verse 18, he is the head of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn of the dead. All of this is so that he might be preeminent, that he might be first. Verse 19, if it wasn't already clear, he's God. Verse 20, He's the reconciler of all things. He is the peacemaking sacrifice. Verse 22, he is the reconciler of believers. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's done. Now don't miss this. That's, that's who Jesus is as revealed in one section of one chapter within one book in one testament of one whole book that God has revealed of his infinite nature. This is not everything that he is. He is so much more than this. And yet just based off of this little section, just one small part of one chapter and one small book, what is he worthy of according to that list? Everything. He's worthy of everything. It's not easy to give everything, but is he worthy of it? He is. See, God calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, not just on the personal level, but also on the 
interpersonal level, when, when we look at the first list, if we've seen already as in the weeks that we've been in Colossians, what kind of things has he described that we're supposed to do in walking worthy of the Lord? Again, just as a review, here's some of the list. Verse four, walking worthy of the Lord looks like a love for all the saints. Verse six, it looks like bearing fruit and increasing. Verse eight, it looks like love in the spirit. Verse nine, looks like being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Verse 22, living holy, blameless, and above reproach. Verse 23, continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That first list is what, what Paul has already shown us. If you want to walk worthy of the Lord, it's going to look like these things. And if we look at that list, the common denominator of what we've seen so far in Colossians is that most of these are accomplished on a personal level, apart from maybe the element of loving all the saints, but even still, we're talking within the context of the church. Now, is that an easy list to accomplish? Not for me, at least. Maybe for you, but for me, it's not an easy list. But at least it's something where it's between me and God and me and other believers. We could think of maybe some strategies of like, okay, we can do this. Let's think of ways that we can do this. You know what? I had a great time in Florida. I liked the privacy that we had. I liked being able to have just some time with my family. And, and there were some elements where not having to interact with the world, being away from social media, being away from all these things, it kind of made the job easier. Not completely. I still took my sinful nature with me, but there were some elements where I'm like, okay, you know what we should do? We should pool our resources buy a property for just us. Ron Paul's parents were here. They were telling me about land opportunities in, in Alaska, kind of the opposite of Florida, but maybe we could do that. And then just, just us. And maybe, maybe we could accomplish some of this personal list. But is that the whole list that God is going to give when he talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Is it just personal? Is it just private? No. It's interpersonal. It's public. There's another mission. There's another piece of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that God calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that our mission is not just private, it's also public that in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we can't just lock our doors, close up the church, circle the wagons, and only spend time with the redeemed. To walk worthy of him, we will need to open the door, walk out by faith, and proclaim Christ to the world, even knowing that it will cost us much. Our big idea is this. We have great joy when we fulfill our purpose in proclaiming Christ, no matter the cost. We have great joy when we fulfill our purpose in proclaiming Christ, no matter the cross. Let's look at verse 24. This is Paul's committed reality. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and let us all know right now, we are going to need to spend more time with this verse than the rest of the verse in our section. In this first part, Paul makes 
two shocking statements. One that's hard for us to grasp on a human level. The other that's hard for us to grasp on a Christian level. Two statements that he makes that we need to spend some time developing. So if you're watching your clock and you're like, man, we have not made it out of verse 24, it's going to ramp up. Give me, get, have some patience with me. We need to work through this. The first statement that's hard for us is hard on a human level. This is what he says. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We need to remember that this is a continuation of what Paul said at the end of the previous paragraph, where in verse 23, Paul is exhorting them to not shift from their hope of the gospel. And he says, of which, which gospel, the gospel of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Now, when Paul makes this statement that he is rejoicing in his suffering, when he makes this statement, this statement there's an elephant in the room. Why, why is he suffering? What, what's going on in Paul's life? We need to understand what's happening as this book is written. First, just the general context. Was it safe? to cling to the gospel at that time. And, and, and I, I don't want to make a, just look at other history and say, oh, they, they had it so much worse. The reality is it, it's never safe to cling to the gospel. We are always in a spiritual war, but there are different times, there are different eras, there are different uh, locations in which that does not always look the same. But thinking of the context of the Colossians, was it a safe thing to cling to the gospel. For Paul to say, don't shift from your hope of the gospel. Do you think some of those readers had a tangible price that that would cost them? That they had some idea, wait a second, Paul, what you're asking of me, do you know what that's going to cost me? Maybe if even, even if it hadn't happened to them, they know it's happened around them. It's likely that the Colossians first heard about Christ when Paul was in Ephesians. If you read about Acts, you read of different things that happened in Ephesians. The riot that happened where for two hours the, the crowd is shouting praise to this idol. Paul himself, what was Paul's history? Before Christ, before coming to Christ, when he was Saul, what was Paul doing? Killing them. Persecuting. They, they, they've seen this. But more than that, where's Paul writing from? Prison. He's in jail. Why is he in jail? Because he didn't shift from his hope in the gospel. See, see for Paul to say, don't shift from your hope in the gospel, and they're like, yeah, buddy, I don't know if that really works. You're writing that from prison. There's a reason you're not with us. You're going to tell us that. Show us the evidence. Show us that this is practical, that this works. So Paul addresses the concerns because he's like, wait a second. I'm not in denial. I know where I am. I, I know that, that there's a cost to this. But I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
In Colossians 4, he, it, 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 we know that he's in prison because in Colossians 4, it says, he, he asks the Colossians to pray for him. He says, pray also for us that God may also open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. We're going to talk more about the mystery of Christ. On account of which I am in prison. He's in prison because of the gospel. Paul's saying, don't abandon the gospel And he's writing it from prison because of the gospel, and so he addresses it. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We're going to look more at this a little bit later. But what causes someone to to rejoice in the face of hardship? Like that's not normal, right? Can we we can just acknowledge there might be a there's a small breed of people who just enjoy suffering. We generally call them Navy SEALs, but other than them, the vast majority of people. That's not what's happening. But even in that sense, even Navy SEALs, they're not just rejoicing in pain. It's because what that pain is producing is more valuable. Or even if it's not producing something, the cause for which you are willing to do it, that thing is something you value more. The only way to rejoice in the face of hardship is because you see it as something, you are doing it because of something that has more value. Like I said, we will come back to that. For now, let's look at Paul's second shocking statement. Paul's first statement was hard for us to grasp on a human level. His second statement is hard to grapple with on a Christian level. This is what he says. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. How many of you would believe that to be heresy if you weren't reading it in your Bible in front of you right now? Let's just say some Sunday you came to church, we had a guest speaker, and the guest speaker got up and said, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for your sake. If I didn't know better, I'd probably leave. Whoa, yo, buddy, you Christ isn't lacking anything. Who do you think you are? This is a hard statement, and we're going to need to work through it. In determining what Paul is saying, we need to first acknowledge what this is not saying. Paul is not saying, pay attention, that Christ's atoning sacrifice was insufficient. He is not saying that Christ's sacrifice mostly saved us, but there's a little more to do. It might look like that, but that is not what he's saying. When it comes to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, if we were to ask, how sufficient was Christ's sacrifice? What percentage of the work did it accomplish? If we give any number that is less than 100%, we are preaching heresy. Whatever you could say, well, Christ did 99.9999999999% of the work, but there's that little part that I have to do. If you are preaching that, if you are believing that, it is a lie. Christ did it all. Colossians 1.21, what we saw before when we were in Colossians, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
Colossians 2, verse 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's atoning work was sufficient. What, what words did Christ proclaim from the cross? It is finished. It's done. I did the work you couldn't do. I don't need help to do the work. I was the only one who could do it. You can't help pay for this. Pastor Billy, last week, when he was preaching and showing us in Exodus, what did the law show them? It revealed their heart. It revealed their insufficiency. You cannot save yourself. There is no element that you can do that can redeem yourself, that can make you more worthy. It is by Christ alone. So if it's not... Paul saying, I am going to add to the atoning work of Christ. I am filling up what's lacking there. What is he doing? Because we have to understand what this is really talking about. To understand that, we need to understand the unfolding of God's plan. When we understand God's plan, who is at the center of God's plan? What is the epicenter of what God has said? This is how my plan works. It all comes back to this. Who is it? Who is it? Jesus. That's when we really should just rally around and say, who's at the center? Jesus. What is at the center? His sacrifice. His atoning work. Now I'm going to ask a question that you might be like, oh man, this feels like that heresy thing again. Christ is at the center of God's plan. Is all of God's plan Christ? No. In the sense that does God have a purpose for us in his plan? Does God have good works that he has ordained, that he has established before time began, that we are to do? Yes. Does that mean that we can boast in these things? Does that mean we can say, okay, well, this is what I did? No. Paul's not boasting here. He's pointing to the reality that we have a part in the plan that God has ordained. Everything, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. But who is it efficient for? It was enough, but who does it actually produce something for? Believers. Is that a necessary part for Christ's sacrifice? Is there an element where someone needs to believe? Okay, now listen, look at the two qualifiers, the two prepositional phrases that Paul says, for your sake, for the sake of the body. Again, if this were about 
adding to the atonement, he wouldn't say for the sake of others, he'd say for the sake of himself. I am filling up what is lacking in order that I may attain salvation. He's not saying that. He's saying for the sake of others. We need to see where our part is in God's redemptive plan. This is an astounding truth that is, uh, if you're asking to me to explain why God did this, I don't know. But the fact is that God chose to reveal his sacrificing Savior through the work of suffering saved sinners. That's what God chose to do. He said, here's my plan. Christ is going to do the work. But I'm going to ask you to tell people about it. The one who's going to reveal what God what Christ has done, it was sufficient, but what needs to now happen is it needs to go forward and be proclaimed. This is Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then will they call on him, call on, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, our role in God's sovereign plan is to proclaim Christ. The peace that is lacking is the ongoing proclamation of Christ. Now you might say, wait a second, Stephen, it doesn't say that the peace that is lacking, that what he's filling up is the proclamation of Christ. It says that he is filling up the afflictions of Christ. It really feels like you're just kind of trying to shoehorn your own theology here. I'm not. Let me show you. Why is he suffering? Why is Paul in prison? Because he proclaimed the gospel. What are we going to see in the rest of the passage? What he's going to say in the next verse? To make the word of God fully known. We proclaim him. We teach him. We warn everyone. All of this, the cause for Paul's suffering in this context, we're not talking about all suffering. We are talking about the suffering that happens when someone gives their life to preaching the good news of Christ, when they suffer for the sake of the gospel. Do we understand that the reason we are here now, the reason we have heard the proclamation of Christ is because there is an unbroken line from us all the way back to Christ of people who are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's your heritage. If you are a believer, you are here because between from you to the cross, there is an unbroken line of people who are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. If we did not have that, that would be lacking. Christ would still be sufficient, and yet we would not know about it because no one suffered to tell us. That's the heritage that we have. That's the baton that has been passed into our hands. In God's sovereign plan, he chose to reveal the sacrificing Savior through the proclamation of saved, suffering sinners. And that is a hard reality for us to swallow. We don't, we, we're, we're okay with most elements of that part except for the suffering part. Why, why do we need to include the suffering? Why not just let us accomplish our, our purpose without the suffering? And this is what we must realize. Fulfilling our purpose in a fallen world inevitably will lead to suffering for Christ. 
2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm not making that up. I'm going to read it again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus revealed the same truth to his disciples in John 15, where he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Why did they hate Jesus? Because he reveals that the works of the world are evil. He reveals the darkness that is within. And the darkness hates the light. What is it that we reveal when we proclaim Christ and preach the gospel? We reveal man's condition. We reveal the world's depravity. We expose the darkness. How do we expect the world to respond to that truth if not through persecution, hatred, and suffering? We could spend the rest of our service just reading passages regarding the reality of suffering for Christ, but suffice to say that suffering plays a role within the Father's plan. We see it in Christ's sacrifice. We see it in the cost of living in a manner worthy of the Lord. What Paul is doing is following the path that Christ established. Christ suffered for sinners to be saved. We must suffer for sinners to be saved. We don't suffer in the same way. We do not offer an atoning sacrifice. And yet we follow the model that Christ said, Father, what you have called me to do, I'm going to do, even at the cost of suffering. For us, we do the same. Father, what you have called me to do, I will do, even at the cost of suffering for the sake of others. Now, you might ask, Stephen, is suffering really necessary, though? My answer might surprise you in that I will say, no, it's not necessary in the sense that you do not, every time you share the gospel, need to look and say, okay, where was the suffering? If I don't find suffering every time I tried to live for Christ, then I probably didn't do it. No, there is the blessing that God sometimes gives us the wonderful gift that we can do something for him without needing to suffer in that moment. So is suffering always necessary? No. But suffering is inevitable. And if you are living your life trying to just avoid suffering, you will not accomplish the purpose that God has given you. It's inevitable. But it's also a blessing. The question we need to ask is, is Christ worth it? Is he worthy of my suffering? He is. We can't move past this. This is so crucial. Is Christ worthy of my suffering? If Christ asks me, I want you to suffer for my sake, for the sake of the body, for the sake of the lost. If Jesus asks me that, will I, will you suffer for me? What is my answer? There's the right answer. And there's a real answer. What's your real answer? Because our goal is to make our real answer match the right answer. But we don't do that by denial of saying, oh yes, of course, I will. I would suffer for him. Are you? Am I? Will we? 
If we reach the point where we are unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his body, for the sake of the lost, then we must run to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need to see you. I need to understand who you are and what you've done. This problem seems too big, but that's because I'm not seeing how big you are. Help me to see that you are worthy of everything. And here's the good news. If we truly reach that point, not only will we be willing to suffer, we will rejoice in our suffering because that's how valuable he is. We rejoice because we are following the path of Christ. That's not just something that Christians say. Oh, yes, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm rejoicing. You know. No, we, we can see that. We can see that here in Paul, but by God's sovereignty, we also got to see that this week with a different Paul, Ron Paul, and Jean Paul, the Paul's parents or grandparents. They came, and I know many of the community groups here had them come and share about their ministry in Alaska. And I'm listening to what they're sharing, and do you know what I'm hearing? Man, that's suffering. Snow? Ugh. You guys went the wrong way. You know, need to go down south. They're suffering. And I'm not just saying because of the snow. No, truly what they are facing was hard. 200 miles away from the nearest grocery store, serving with a bunch of people who are constantly inebriated, serving with people that every imaginable sin is happening where they are not necessarily, they're respected, but, but not having anyone else to serve with them, having to do all their work while they're in their 70s. That's suffering. Do you know what they didn't say at all while they were sharing? We're suffering. They didn't say it. They talked about how much they loved it. They talked about how much they saw it as a privilege to serve these people. They are suffering. But more than suffering, they were rejoicing. That's not just some Christian thing. What would cause them to be able to do that? Because they saw the worthiness of Christ. This is worth giving everything for. We have great joy when we fulfill our purpose in proclaiming Christ no matter the cost. Let's keep going. Now we're going to speed up a little. Let's look at verse 25. It says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This is Paul's ordained ministry. Why was Paul willing to suffer for the sake of the church? Because God had ordained him for that purpose. God gave Paul the ministry of caring for the church. He called him to the mission of making his word fully known. Paul understood his purpose and that changed his perspective. Paul wasn't sitting in prison wondering what went wrong. I don't get it. I did everything I was asked to do. I was a good preacher. I gave everything for the people around me. And it was working. People were getting saved. Why am I suffering in prison? Come on, God. This isn't fair. Paul wasn't saying that. Paul understood his purpose. And he understood his place. That your ways are higher than my ways. You understand, you can see, there is a temptation for us to look at things only based off of our preferences or off of what's practical. Preferentially, Paul didn't want to be in prison. Practically, if his mission is to make the word of God fully known, that's easier to do when you can actually not be chained to a wall. 
And yet Paul still rejoiced because he understood that what he was doing was not only following the path of Christ, it was fulfilling the purpose that God had given him. Every time we face hardships and sufferings, our natural inclination is to question why. And that's okay. It's okay to ask why. But sometimes we are asking why because we don't understand our purpose. We don't understand what it is, what our mission is in this world. Paul didn't need to ask why in this case. There were other times where he said, can you remove this thorn from my flesh? I don't see it. And then God would say, this is why I've given this to you. Okay, then I'll submit. But he's not asking why here. Why? He understands that this is part of his purpose. Paul was suffering because he was striving to accomplish the purpose of a holy God in a fallen world. He was suffering because he was continuing on the path of Christ. He was suffering because Jesus said we would suffer for his name. He was suffering because he was committed to making the word of God fully known. He was suffering because he was doing what God had asked him to do. And while he was suffering, he was rejoicing. Why was he rejoicing? Because this was the process, this was his purpose, and he was willing to do it all because Christ was worth it. We need to ask ourselves, am I willing to suffer in order to fulfill my purpose? If God calls me to a purpose and within the path of accomplishing that purpose, there comes a time when it requires me to suffer, what will my response be? For Paul, that wasn't a problem. If the path of fulfilling his purpose required suffering, then he joyfully continued because he was called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This was the path of fulfilling his purpose. Paul was willing to suffer because it was the path that Christ had already established, because it was the purpose that God had given him. But not just that, he was willing to suffer because he saw it as a privilege to serve. We have great joy when we fulfill our purpose in proclaiming Christ no matter the cost. Let's look at verse 26 and 27. We'll pick up at the end of verse 25. To make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We can see here God's redemptive plan unfold. If we're looking at our passage, the way, the structure of our passage, if you remove this part, if you remove verses 26 and 27, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to suffer. It's not worth it to fulfill our purpose. But we don't have to do that because it's given to us right here. This is why we do this because it's a privilege. Did Paul see his suffering as a problem that needed to be fixed? No. We've already seen that he understood his suffering to be part of the plan. He understood his suffering as was happening because of his purpose. But here we see for Paul, his suffering was a privilege. The message Paul is proclaiming, the message he is suffering for, that message was not always revealed. The full word of God was a mystery hidden for ages and generations. Last week, Pastor Billy took us through Exodus. God was in Exodus revealing his plan. And while there were elements that were pointing forward to Christ, not all of it had been revealed. There were still parts of it that were a mystery. 
how God's redemptive plan would unfold, how God would fulfill the promises he had made, that was still unknown until now. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is it for us to be able to benefit from seeing the full word of God? It's a privilege. It's a privilege that God would entrust that message to us. Paul recognizes that he is so fortunate to live in a time where God has clearly revealed his sovereign plan. He is so fortunate that he has made his plan known to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God revealed his plan to his saints, to his people. And he included someone we would not have expected. He included the Gentiles. That's us. He has made his plan known. And it's not just that we are aware of the plan. We're part of the plan. Christ in you. Christ, the hope of glory. This changes everything. Why would we suffer to make the word of God fully known? Because we are privileged enough to see God's word fully. This is God's redemptive plan unfolded. We have the privilege of proclaiming the, 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 of proclaiming the glorious hope and truth of Christ in us. Here's the question. Is this message worthy of our suffering? Is the mystery of Christ in us worthy of pain? I can't answer that for you. I can give you the right answer. I'm still working on making my real answer match the right answer. But is he worthy? See, we understand the privilege of our position in redemptive history when we look at the full story. At the beginning of human history, everything was good. The holy creator God was in fellowship with his creation. There was no enmity between God and man. But we fell. We turned away from our worship of the only God, thinking we could become God. We sinned and the relationship was broken. We sinned and death entered the world. We sinned and we lived in the domain of darkness. But in the midst of our darkness, God provided hope. First, it was just a glimmer. Just one promise. In the midst of, of the curse of saying everything that was happening in the fall, he said, there is one who's coming the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. As time went on, as God revealed more of his plan, that glimmer grew brighter. There was more and more that was pointing forward and saying, this is not it. There is one who is coming that is greater. Until finally the light was revealed. The light came to this world was born as a man and was revealed as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This light didn't just come to expose the darkness. This light came to sacrifice, to die in the place of sinners, but he didn't stay dead. He conquered death. He paid for the sin. He finished the work. This then is the mystery revealed. How were the promises of God to be made complete? How were sinners to be redeemed? How was God's relationship with man to be restored? Through the mystery revealed, which is Christ in you. 
But we must understand while all of this is true, Christ is only in those who have placed their faith in Christ alone. This mystery is revealed to the saints. Do you see the privilege we have? This message has been given to us. Understand the world does not see the mystery as good news. They despise the message. This message reveals their fallen hearts. In proclaiming this message, you will suffer. But is this worthy of our suffering? Is Christ worthy of our proclamation no matter the cost? He is. And we can rejoice in the privilege of not only knowing, but also in proclaiming the mystery now revealed. We have great joy when we fulfill our purpose in proclaiming Christ, no matter the cost. But as a, it's not exactly the quote, but with great privilege comes great responsibility. We have a privilege. We have a a responsibility. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Look closely at verse 28. What's different about verse 28 compared to the rest of our passage? Well, if we look back to verse 24, this is, I'm going to just emphasize it as I read some things. I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking, of which I became a minister. Who's Paul been talking about? Himself. Now we come to verse 28. Notice the transition. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, this isn't just Paul's ministry. This isn't something that is just for the apostles. We could look at that and we say, well, wait. Yeah, of course Paul's going to suffer for this. He's an apostle. They're like, super Christians. They're, they're, they're going to do these things. They can bear that burden. But, but that's, not, that's not like normal Christians. Like normal Christians, we, we don't have to do that. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, what are we called to do? We're called to proclaim him. There's an old saying that says, uh, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I understand that, that what the person was trying to say in that was live a, a gospel revealing life. Live a life that people see. And when we look at the beginning of Colossians, there's a lot of elements in there. If we are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, that should be gospel revealing. In Peter, when it says, always be ready to give an answer for anyone who asks for the hope. Why would they ask? Because your life is revealing the gospel. But where I disagree with the statement is with the word if necessary. Newsflash, it's necessary. We must use words. The way that God has been revealed to us is through his word. No one is going to be saved just by seeing you as a good and godly person. The way they are going to be saved is if they hear the truth of the gospel that God calls them to himself and they place their faith in him. And so Paul says, look, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, but part of that is proclaiming him. Him we proclaim. What do we do with that? We warn everyone. What are we warning them about? The condition of their soul. That they are sinners. That they are dead in their sins. That they are far from God. Do you think that they're going to enjoy that? No. Are you likely to suffer for that? Yes. 
And obviously there is wisdom in how we do that, okay? And I'm not gonna go into that, but use wisdom. But the fact is, we are to warn people. You can't have the gospel while removing the reality of our sin. That's a part that must be included. We need to be saved from something. From ourselves, from our own sin. Then it says, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Again, we can look at this. Don't, don't relegate your responsibility that God has given you. Don't think, well, I'll just bring them to church because uh, sharing the gospel, uh, teaching that with all wisdom, that's beyond me. I'll just let the pastor do it. I will tell you, I'm happy to do it. Okay? We will preach the gospel every week. But you also have that responsibility. You are called to teach with all wisdom. That doesn't mean you have the gift of teaching that you're going to now start preaching and leading Bible studies and doing all of those things. That might be something that God is calling you to do. In Hebrews, it talks about, look, you should be at the point of teaching others, but you're still at a point where you're just drinking milk. So there is an element where you should grow and progress in that, but you might not reach that point. It might not be your personality. That's okay. But you need to be at the point where you can teach the gospel with all wisdom. You need to be at the point where you can explain the gospel. Um, I was going to bring one up. Nate, can you grab on the table back there? I, I have a bunch of books there. If you're looking at that and saying, I don't know about this. That, I can't do that. That book back there, it's, it's What is the Gospel? Thank you, Nate. Very well presented. We have a number of copies back there. If you're looking at this saying, I can't proclaim him. I can't warn people. I can't teach with all wisdom. You're making it harder than it needs to be. But also, don't give yourself a pass. You need to know what it says. What is the gospel? Can you share this? Because it's our mission. It's our Christian mission that has been given to us. We warn everyone. And we do that, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, our goal is that God would use us as he calls sinners to himself. Our goal is that in proclaiming Christ, in warning sinners, in teaching with wisdom, our desire is that God would use that to redeem those who are lost, that then they too would have Christ in them. I want you to notice though, what is the scope of the work? What is the quota that Paul gives? Five? Friends and family, 10. Who does he say we're supposed to do this for? Three times, yep. Everyone, everyone. We'll be honest, that is beyond us. But that's the mission. See, sometimes when we, when we think about that, the predestination that God calls people, we think, well, he's gonna do it. So I, you know, we'll just, I'll see what happens. I'm just gonna spectate. Nope, actively involved. And we are finite where he is not. So that means we don't get to say, well, no, God's definitely going to save that person, but probably not that person. So I'm not going to waste my time. No, warning everyone, proclaiming to everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone. Why? Because we're limited in our information. So that's the scope of the work that we're called to do. And you might say that seems unreasonable. Is he worthy of it? Is he worthy of that scope of the job? We have great joy because what joy we would have in knowing that God uses us in our weakness to accomplish his purpose. That's joy. You're gonna use me? I'm nothing. But you're gonna give me this privilege? 
We have great joy when we fulfill our purpose in proclaiming Christ no matter the cost. We now come to the end of our passage and Paul goes back to sharing his own testimony and how he is committed to this task. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is not delusional that this is all fun in the sun. Paul says, I toil, I struggle. Following the path of Christ, fulfilling our purpose, embracing our privilege, that's not easy. It's gonna take work. Thankfully, we have a source we can run to. We are not and cannot do this, doing this in our own strength. It's impossible. We must do it through Christ. We labor, we toil, we struggle, we suffer, we rejoice with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worth the cost. What is Christ worthy of? We're called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Based on who he is and what he's done, what is Christ worthy of? He's worthy of everything. That's the right answer. All of us are going to struggle on making that also our real answer. But that's what we're called to do. He's worthy of our obedience, even at the cost of suffering, even at the cost of everything. This morning, God might be asking you to sacrifice and suffer, and you're scared. You're overwhelmed. You just think you can't. And it's going to hurt. Understand that you are following the path of Christ. You're not unique in your suffering. There was someone who suffered more than anyone so that he could give a gift greater than anyone deserved. He suffered more. You're following his path. But thanks be to God, he did what we couldn't do. The part he's asking us to do is infinitesimally, I don't think I said that right, but very small. And yet it's necessary. He called us to follow the same path. Have joy in knowing that you are walking like Jesus. Follow the path of Christ. Fulfill your purpose. God did not just ask us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord privately. He called us to do it publicly. We are meant to proclaim Christ. We are called to warn everyone, teach everyone, present everyone mature in Christ. That's our mission. Fulfill your purpose and have joy that you are doing what God asked you to do. Recognize the privilege we have. God has revealed his plan to us. He has made it known to his saints. The mystery has been made known to us. This privilege is worth giving everything for, no matter the cost, because Christ is in us. It's not easy, but it's necessary, and it's good. We have great joy when we fulfill our purpose in proclaiming Christ no matter the cost. Father God, this is beyond us. We thank you that at the end of our passage, you, you, we have the truth that we can do this, not in our strength, but in your strength that you powerfully work within us. So Lord, we come before you right now as weak and humbled children to say, Father, we, we can't. I do not have the strength to do this. I don't have the desire to do this. 
I don't have the strength. I, I don't want to suffer. And yet, Lord, it's necessary. And, and what I would pray for, it, it's inevitable. I would pray that we would be strengthened by you to do what you are asking us to do. Lord, help us to, to submit to you. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would use this church specifically, that you would use the members of Hillside Haven Community Church to proclaim to everyone, to warn everyone, to teach everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Lord, what a privilege to be part of that process. And we pray that we would follow the path of Christ, that we would fulfill our purpose, and that we would embrace our privilege that we have in you. Pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.